Well, we conclude our series in Ruth, and we're reading in the fourth chapter, the final chapter, and this is uh, Ruth chapter 4, this is uh, page 264, if you have the ESV Pew Bible in front of you. Ruth chapter 4, page 264. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, "'Buy it for yourself,' he drew off his sandal." Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day, Without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you, 
who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, and so we conclude our series on Ruth, and what a great series it has been. If you've missed out, you have missed out. Uh, We have seen these really big themes of redemption and blessing and promises and sovereignty and trust and loving kindness, hesed, love. We've seen protection. It's all here. And I do hope that it has served you well. I hope that it has showed you more and more of God's character. I I hope that it has showed you more and more of God's character at, at greater depths and at fuller applications than you had previously. Because my aim here is to present you fully mature in Christ. And if you're here at the nine o'clock service, then you can trust that I am putting in the work of wrestling with the text that all week I am striving to understand and to teach and apply these passages to us so that we have a greater confidence and a greater trust in our God that we would better see the graces that God gives us like this community that we have here together, that we would rejoice together in this shared hope that we have, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Next week and and the following week, We're going to look at two psalms of David. What a fitting follow-up since we read about the prophecy of the coming king and coming of King David this morning. And the psalms we're going to look at will look forward to the even greater king in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've prayed together as little groups, but let me pray for us over collectively. Father, we are grateful for this body. We are grateful that though there are many parts, we all stand united under the headship of Christ. And so, Father, in that we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. We pray that you would illuminate our minds through this passage in Ruth as we finish this series. Father, that it will have served us well, that you would give us special attention to listen to uh, the truths that come from your word, for we know that your word is always beneficial, always good, always leading us to a better understanding of who you are, better understanding of our relationship with you. 
And so, Father, we commit these next moments to you, that you would do uh, as you will this morning, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what will happen to our main characters in the narrative that we've been looking at for now four weeks? Each week, it seems that we are left on the the precipice of of waiting to see what's going to happen to Ruth and and Naomi and Boaz, and I always feel like it's a spoiler because I have to read the passage before we actually study it so you know what's going to happen, but such is life. Uh, And here we are at the height of of the tension and the release of this entire book in this book of Ruth. Everything has been building to this crescendo that's taking place. What will the characters do? How will they act in these situations? How will God lead and guide by his invisible hand? Well, the first thing we're looking at this morning is a fulfilled promise, a fulfilled Promise. Boaz has gone out to ensure that Ruth and Naomi are redeemed, are protected. He's looking after their well-being. He's being used by God to serve them. He's looking after the, the widow and the foreigner, as Scripture calls him to do, as, as the Old Testament law calls him to do, so he's doing the right thing. And then the women are looking after one another as well. They have this great love for one another. You know, today that term love is is thrown around everywhere to where it almost means nothing today. And I'm sure you've heard me rant about this before. But I mean, today, love can mean like or preference or desire or infatuation. It's really and genuinely all over the spectrum. We can say that we love ice cream and our children and use the same word without giving a second thought about it. Some of you have done that. Um, That was a gentle, polite insult to all of us. Take that as you may. I I guess this is why I love the Greek language in in that the Greek has so many different vocabulary words for love that, 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 that cover such a range of, of emotions, and it helps us clarify and understand. But here we are seeing love in the sense of what I would call biblical, or agape, or as the term we've been using over the last four weeks, hesed, love, I'm working on my Hebrew pronunciation, right? Okay. This love says what? It sacrifices the interests of self for the betterment of another. It suspends my rights and my privileges and my freedoms and my preferences for the benefit of another, even if it costs me a great deal. And again... In a a time period, as we've talked about, you remember at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, it talks about how this is taking place during the time of the judges. And in that time period, the moniker was, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so so hesed love, which is being displayed by our characters here, is even more impressive. It's it's even starker with the dark background. The, The light shines through so much more brightly. 
how I wish that hesed, loving kindness, and faithful love were the moniker of churches today. Well, in chapter 4, we see Boaz is not resting, but he's not waiting for something to happen, but he is actively moving forward as we, as we looked at last week. He goes straight to the nearer Redeemer that he knows exists because Boaz wants to do everything above board. Remember, we discussed the, the character of our characters. He is a man of high esteem. He is, he's honorable, and he wants to do it the right way. So Boaz goes to the city. He goes to the city gates where he finds the nearer Redeemer. And in Hebrew, the nearer Redeemer's name essentially translates to Mr. So-and-so, which signifies to us that he is a, not a super important character. He, he, he's, not, uh, he's not of great importance. His name is not Melchizedek, you know, the, the mysterious priest who Abraham uh, pays tribute to in the book of Genesis. Uh, and, and the order of the priesthood that we know that Christ comes from, as we read about in Hebrews, through the order of Melchizedek. Because names carry so much significance. And so Melchizedek interprets to uh, a king of righteousness, or my king is the righteous one, or my king is God. Uh, uh, but So he's called Mr. So-and-so. And he shows that he's not a main character. He's not being added to the story as a main character. And we think, oh, no, another main character in the last chapter. At least that's how I read it. I don't know if that's how you read it. Anyway, so Boaz calls on Mr. So-and-so, and he has him sit down. And then he gathers 10 uh, of the elders of the city to come and sit down because he wants them to bear witness, to be witnesses of the transaction that is about to take place. Then Boaz says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it, or literally, I thought I would uncover your ear and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and then I come after you. Okay? So Boaz says, you are the rightful redeemer if we're doing things correctly. You have first dibs on whether to redeem the land or to reject it. Okay, or to refuse it. The redemption of the land here is the sale of the property. The sale of the property. And this is what Naomi needs. This is the redemption that she needs. Okay, So the property has remained in Elimelech's family. He didn't sell it when they went to Moab. But Naomi cannot work the land herself. And that land has just laid uh, overgrown with weeds and, and, and all kinds of problems for 10 plus years. So she's not going to be able to do anything with it unless she sells it. And Mr. So-and-so, now he can buy it, as we talked about in uh, the Levitical law of redemption of land in Leviticus chapter 25. He can buy the land and redeem Naomi or he can refuse it and allow Boaz to redeem it. Now, this is a fantastic, if you are a business person, this is an excellent offer. Mr. So-and-so knows it. He can get a piece of land 
which was so hard to come by in Israel since land was passed down from generation to generation to generation through the family line. So uh, acquiring a new parcel of land would have been quite difficult. It's kind of like today. You might sell your house quickly, but you'll probably never find another house, at least at your price point. Uh, uh, but but here, here, here's a perfect storm, a perfect situation. The owner has died, and his sons have also died. There's no one to inherit the land. There is only the widow and the daughter-in-law. So Mr. So-and-so, being a shrewd investor, says, Yes, I will redeem it. This is a no-brainer. I will purchase the land. And so now our story takes a strange twist, right? So it's now Mr. So-and-so is the one who's going to come out of nowhere and redeem? I mean, what about Boaz? What about the marriage proposal from the previous chapter? Will all of these things fall apart? Is God up in heaven wringing his hands thinking, Oh no, Mr. So-and-so, I should have given you a better name. Is it going to have a different ending than we, than we all may be expecting? Then Boaz says, oh, and by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead uh, in, in his inheritance. Okay, so how do we interpret these lines here, right? Because we're not, none of us are really living in a whatever 1300 BC time mindset, right? It could be that the Redeemer's role in this case is to care for those who survive the dead, right? So the Redeemer redeems the land, and now the responsibility is to take care of uh, those that are left behind. So he's got to take care of Ruth. What may be clearer is if we understand this to signal to Mr. So-and-so that Boaz intends to marry Ruth regardless of what happens to the property. And this helps us to understand Mr. So-and-so's response that will impair his inheritance. Why? Because if Ruth and Boaz marry and have a child or children, then those children are the heirs to the land of Elimelech. That property becomes theirs because Boaz is perpetuating the name of the dead and the land, uh, and the land will, under inheritance law, become theirs. And so Mr. So-and-so realizes that he could purchase this property, redeem Naomi, and then still lose on the property, lose on all the land that he's just purchased. It could go to someone else. It won't go to him, and it won't go to his children, only to have it taken away from him. So at this point, Mr. So-and-so hands over the role of Redeemer to Boaz. Did Boaz know that this would be the case all along? Probably. He, he seemed to have a measured response, right? So he presents a really enticing offer, and then he says, oh, and by the way, don't forget these facts. So what is the point of this? 
And the answer is, I'm not really sure. I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> Here's what I can surmise. This, this, this is not super clear in the scriptures, so don't, this is not gospel truth here. But perhaps we could read about the dedication that Boaz has to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and he would stop at nothing to ensure that it happens. It's again, it, it, is, a, it is a mark of his character that he cares so much for these women. Who knows if Mr. So-and-so would have been as kind or as caring or as loving as Boaz would be. He doesn't know. So he's not going to put them in a, a potentially uh, disastrous situation. Again, remember within the theme of the book of Judges, people were doing what was right in their own eyes. So if that's the theme for, for, for Israel as a nation... It would, be, it would be careless of Boaz to then say, sure, go with Mr. So-and-so. He'll redeem it. But he says, no, I know that if they're under my care, they're under my responsibility, I will care and take care of them in the ways that God has equipped me to do. And remember that Boaz did make a promise. And he did want to marry Ruth. So this was probably uh, the best way to do things. But again, it shows the, the, the providential hand of God in overcoming even seemingly impossible or, or, or contradictory issues. Issues that say, oh, no, another roadblock. You know, is this guy going to end up being the redeemer and then maybe he ends up being a bad guy? I mean, even God could redeem that if he wanted to. But he's chosen to, to bypass all these things and to use Boaz as the redeemer. Then we see this ancient custom of removing the sandal and exchanging it to certify or confirm a transaction. Well, why the sandal? This strange custom? Well, again, I don't want to read too much into all of this, but the author has put it in here, and so it's worth our time to find out why it's here. And I think the sandal has this representation of land. Why? We think of Moses standing before God, uh, who's come in the form of a burning bush, and Yahweh tells him to remove his sandals, for the ground that he is standing on is set apart. It is holy ground. The angel of the army of the Lord does the same with Joshua in chapter 5. In Deuteronomy, when God says that none of the wicked generation will see the promised land. Only Caleb and his children will see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden or walked. I'm going to start using trodden more often uh, because he has wholly followed the Lord. And then in Joshua chapter 1, God says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. So we see this, these themes of land and promise and generations and set-apartness and feet and walking throughout parts of the Old Testament. So this is not a strange process that, that, that's taking place here. Well, it's not strange to them, of course. It might be strange to us. We happen to be able to find a house uh, in the middle of this uh, climate of all these strange things. And um, I'm, we close on Tuesday. 
And I'm thinking about asking the man to take his shoe off and give it to me (laughs) as a symbol of the transaction. Certainly my son's shoes will be off and those will be exchanged uh, in some capacity. I don't want to miss this though. Because the, the taking off of the sandal, is, it's, it is symbolic and it is instructive. Because behind the symbolism is the reminder that the land truly belongs to the Lord. And yet he graciously gives to his people. Then we read of these blessings from the city, and this is our second point this morning. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Okay, so we have to unpack some of this verse here. There's a lot to deal with. What are the people at the gates and the elders saying here? They invoke the the names of Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, who together uh, gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is interesting that they use this phrase, who built up the house of Israel. And then, of course, we read uh, 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 that out of this relationship that's happening between Ruth and Boaz comes King David. And David is the one who desired to build a house for God. But God tells him that it would be his son who would in fact do this, and we know that it was indeed Solomon who built the temple. But God's response to David when he says he wants to build a house for God, God's response to him was that he, Yahweh, would in fact build a house for David. But it's not a house out of bricks and mortar. He wants to build a house of a dynasty for David. So instead of a building, he wants to build a lineage. What's ironic is that these citizens in our story in Ruth that are blessing Ruth and Boaz using this terminology and these phrases are in fact blessing what would build the house of Israel. And ultimately what would inaugurate the kingdom of God through the seed of David in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so it is a blessing on the lineage that would come from this relationship, this coming together of Ruth and Boaz. Well, the people continue on. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Okay, well, what is that saying? This is a blessing of total well-being and success. May the Lord give you health and wealth and children, and success. It's funny that so much of the, the, the prosperity gospel today that we see today, it really, they reach into the Old Testament and they find their teaching and they pull it out of context and they apply it to their situation. Because in those days, prosperity was displayed by land ownership and wealth and success. In the New Testament, we have received the Holy Spirit and we have union with Christ. We see the world through spiritual eyes and not just physical eyes. And we no longer need God to grant material prosperity to show his favor. 
he showed his favor ultimately in sending Jesus. So we have no other need for God to show us favor. He owes us nothing. Now, he does still, of course, bless people. And, and, and most all of us have been recipients of that in, in living in this country, of course. But, but, but it's why Paul can sit in prison and not feel that he's under the judgment of God. But rather, he can uh, uh, appreciate that what God is doing through his imprisonment, <laughs> that he's using it for his own glory. But in order for Israel to be a blessing to the nations, they have to have a land that can be blessed by God. Now, I know this is a very cursory discussion on a, on a much bigger issue, but I want to make sure you understand the language of the day. It was not a Joel Osteen, go out and get what you can, uh, you know, that God wants you to have these things message. It was rather it may the Lord bless you and make you a blessing everywhere you go and in all things that you do for the glory of God type message. Well, the citizens continue. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here is the reminder that just as the people depend on Yahweh for the barley and the wheat harvest, the birth of children were also a gift from him. The, now, the word offspring that's used here is the word seed. And again, it makes us recall Genesis and how God chose specific people in order that through them and through their seed, the world would be blessed. So we're seeing more continuation of the promises made to Abraham by God here in Ruth some 700 years later. He's been faithful, as we've just sung about. He's been faithful through all of these time periods. And the reference here to, to Judah and Tamar, it links Boaz and Ruth with the family line that, that was blessed, that family line of Jacob that was blessed when he announced the scepter shall not depart from Judah in Genesis chapter 49. Last week we talked about how Boaz would have no problem marrying Ruth because his mother was Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Well, here's some more family, lovely family history. This is not the family album that you want to look at and, and look at the tree, Right? Tamar was a foreign woman who married successively two of Judah's sons. And since both of them died, Judah kind of illogically comes to the conclusion that she's the problem, and so he refuses that his third son would marry her, which was the, what was called for in the Leverite marriage, that she would go to the next uh, brother. And so in her frustration and feeling like the line was being cut off, she disguises herself as a temple prostitute, and she bears a child to her father-in-law, Judah. And that child's name is Perez. And thus not one, but two, and really three, if you really add Rahab, are, of these women are foreign women in this, in this lineage that's taking place. So you have Ruth, Tamar, Rahab are all in the lineage of kings. 
It is a broken lineage. But by God's grace, it is such a picture of redemption. How God uses his people and how he even uses broken situations to bring about his good purposes. And if you've missed it, these blessings from the, from the city that we've called them are, are absolutely dripping with messianic foreshadowing. The line of Jacob, the house of, uh, of Israel are, 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 are Christological on, on, on multiple levels, as we had talked about. Then Ephrathah, Jesus is an Ephrathite. Uh, uh, that you, he's also a worthy man, and then, and then your name would be renowned in Bethlehem. Well, wh- where was Jesus born? He's born in Bethlehem. And then we see the line of Judah. We think about that, that uh, prophecy that is made. Then we think about the issue of redemption and what the redemption that takes place, and Christ is our Redeemer. I mean, it is, it is chock full of messianic imagery. And then finally, our last point, marriage and a son. Marriage and a son. So the, the, the tension has been, that has been building is gone. Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a child, a son. But pay attention to what the text says. Look at, look at the verses. What does it say? Does it say they married and had a child, a son? No, it says the Lord... Yahweh gave her conception and she bore a son. For 10 years, Malon and Ruth were not able to conceive. Why? We don't know other than God did not give conception. But here, he gives them this gift. He has had his hand on this family from the beginning. He allowed them to go out to Moab. He gave them Ruth. He brought them back. He had Ruth work in a field in the family member who was Boaz. And he gave them conception for a child. As the line carries on, the line of kings has been carried on by God's providence, leading to the king of kings who would come from this very line, broken line though it is. Now hear what the women say to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be your restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ever since Naomi returned and said, call me Mara, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And now what has been witnessed, not just by the main characters, but by the entire town, all of Bethlehem. God has not ceased to provide a redeemer for you, whether it is Boaz or whether it is the child, which seems to be who they're talking about in this this section of verses. In her days of bitterness, Naomi thought that, that she would die alone and that that would be it. That would be the end of the line. Now she has someone to care for her in her old age. And the way that they describe Ruth, she's more than seven sons. 
And notice she's referred to as Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's not called Ruth the Moabite any longer. Her value as a woman has been greatly uh, uh, elevated. What a testament to to a society that, that, that held men in so much higher value than women. And so they named the son Obed. I find it strange that the women in the neighborhood named the child. I couldn't imagine doing that today. Sure, you can name my kid. He would be the father of Jesse, who would be the father of David. And then we conclude with this line, the line of Tamar and Judah all the way to King David. Now, David would fail to give Israel permanent rest and blessing. Uh, Those are two themes that we've talked about in previous weeks, rest and blessing. David, though he is the fulfillment of, 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 of what they're looking for in coming of the king, he will fail. He will not be the one that they are ultimately looking for. But as if we have said before, it will be through this line that permanent rest and blessing will come in the coming of the kingdom of God through the Son of God, Jesus. But this book, I think, is for all of us who may perhaps feel tempted to believe like Naomi that God has turned his back on you and has gone out against you, that his arm is against you, or, or has brought calamity upon you. How can that be? How can that be when we have seen, even here in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, he's drawing in. He's drawing in. His display of, of, of hesed, loving kindness, and, and faithful love. When his invisible hand of providence and protection has gone before you. And when his visible hands were nailed to a cross to give you the message of redemption and reconciliation. He has made all of this abundantly clear to us that we too can say, blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a Redeemer. Let us pray. Father, it's a joy to open your word and it's, it, it's great fun to, to learn of the, the history of the, of the people and the places and all the things that are going on and, and, and read of the strange customs and learn about how they relate. But, but through it all, Father, if, if that's what we walk away with, then we, have, we will walk away empty-handed. Because what you're trying to teach us is who you are and how you act. If we think of the... the Israelites that were probably coming out of captivity and they're handed this book of Ruth and they read about it and they say, we are these people. 
that the, that the hand of God is upon us, that he would, he would restore things to us. That if we would be the people that he has called us to be, that blessing would come our way. And these same things are true today for us. That if we see ourselves as God's people, whom he's called out and elected for his purposes, and we put our faith and our trust in Christ alone, the the fulfillment of all the things from this book, that it would go well with us. It may not look like it's going well with us, Even if all we have out of this is the promise of eternal life, that is more than enough. And yet there's so much more. And so what will be our response? Will we have hardened hearts? Will we we treat people out of frustration and anger? Or will we say the display of hesed loving kindness? And would that well up in us in a response to the understanding of what Christ has done for us in the ultimate portrayal of loving kindness? And would we have that for one another? Oh, Father, that it would be as so. Go with us this week. Remind us of these things. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.